Okay, I'm gonna ask a rhetorical question. Here it comes. Ready? Have you ever gotten angry? It's rhetorical, because if you haven't gotten angry at some time, you are not normal. I think the scariest people in the world are suppressors. You know that hold it down, hold it down, hold it down. You're like, oh, it's coming, it's coming, it's not going to look good. It's coming, it's coming. I remember I had this friend, and she was like, seriously perfect, intimidatingly perfect. Ever have a friend like that? Their house is never a mess, like not one thing out of place. Like they even organize the Legos of their children. It's like, whoa. So I had a friend like that. And I remember her husband would do all these outlandish things, and she'd just smile. And I'd be like, whoa, that's interesting. And her kids, they were always, went to bed at the right time. She, she even had what time each of them got their bath. I mean, it was just her life was so perfectly structured. And she considered me to be one of her best friends. And I liked that she liked me, but I was always afraid she was going to come over at the wrong time and catch me, you know, be me the real me. And, you know, I'm like, does she really know me? Because she's like, we're so different. And then one day she called me and she said, Cheryl. And she was like, Cheryl. I'm like, whoa. I said, yeah. She goes, I just went outside and stabbed a tree 26 times pretending it was my husband. (laughs) Then I took all his clothes and I threw them on the driveway. And I was like, really? Welcome to my world. I said, I'm so glad you're normal. I'm so glad you're real, finally. You've been the image of perfect. And you are not perfect, but you've been trying to be perfect and you've become your own idol. And man, the worship service is over, hallelujah. Now we can get back to worshiping Jesus and not yourself, but you know, The suppressors scare me as women because we are weak. When we get angry, we tend to use the weapons of our words. Turk. Jerk is what I said. We tend to gossip because we feel like we can't change the situation. So we'll talk about them. We use innuendo. Hmm. What did you think about that? Not that I'm saying anything, but what do you think? Hmm. We use meanness. We're really good at that one. We use distance, kind of this cold shunning, or anything close enough to throw. Then there are people who are just hotheads. You know, hothead people, um, they're just always losing their temper over something. They're so uh, touchy, touchy, touchy. You know, they're ready to take that person down all the time. Well, uh, let me talk to them. Well, I, I don't know what you're doing. I'll take them on. You're like, oh. Those, those people scare me too. As a child, I hated Green Acres. Green Acres is the place for me. Some of you are like, I have no idea what she's saying. That's good. But Eddie Albert's character, I just didn't understand why he was always so mad at, you know, Mr. Drucker and all the people around him. And he was always upset with his wife, Lisa. And I thought she was beautiful and, you know, kind of a little too good looking for him and sophisticated. And I didn't understand why he was always losing his temper. King Solomon, whose name means peace or peaceable, had quite a lot to say about angry people. 
In Proverbs 21.9, better to dwell in the wilderness than with an angry woman. Proverbs 22.24, don't make friendship with an angry man. Proverbs 29.22, an angry man stirs up strife. Ecclesiastes 7.9, anger rests in the bosom of fools. So have you ever realized that your anger was displaced? Like you got angry over someone and they're like, they're listening to you and they're like, no, 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 you misunderstood me. I, I didn't say that they took the candy. I said that the candy was taken to give to others. And you're like, oh, <laughs> excuse that. You know, but sometimes we, we hear one thing and we go racing away with it. We're so angry. When we find out the situation was nothing like what we thought. All that wasted emotion over a situation that wasn't even real. And when it comes to your anger, you have to ask yourself, was your anger constructive or destructive? I, I don't think that my anger has ever been constructive. Did it help to remedy the situation or just add to the tumult and confusion? Was there a good outcome to your anger or did you lose control? Did things get broken? Were mean things said? Were there actions or words that you wish you could take back? The Bible says in Psalm 4.4 and Ephesians 4.26, be angry and sin not. There is a place for anger. We're going to get angry at times. But it too often moves to the next level of sin. Now, why did I say all that about anger? Because I want you to contrast that with God's judgment. Because God's judgment is not like the anger of men. When God gives his self-description to Moses in Exodus 34, one of the things he says is slow to anger. Slow. Long-suffering in anger. It takes a lot to get God to the boiling point. Very, very slow. Remember, when we're talking about Noah, we're talking about 1,600 years have gone on. When we're looking at our chapters today, Genesis 5 through 8, we're going to be looking at the judgment of God. And this is a very uncomfortable thing to talk about. It's a subject we would all like to avoid. It's hard to think of the reality of hell and the coming judgment on earth because we want God to be only loving, not realizing that you cannot be loving unless you're just. If you really love your kids, you will keep them from destructive ways. If you really love your children, you won't let them walk into the fire. You won't let them go into the street. And if they do, you will grab them back and keep them safe. God is protective in his love. And you cannot be loving without being protective. God is just and therefore he must judge sin. You cannot have love 
in justice without judgment. Part of the problem when it comes to talking about the judgment of God, and I've noticed it's gotten really, really quiet in here, and I know why, judgment. Too often, many equate the judgment of God with their own anger. They think of God's anger as arbitrary, barbaric, unreasonable, destructive, and void of mercy. But nothing could be further from the reality of God's judgment. We're told in Lamentations 3.33 that God does not afflict willingly. Isaiah tells us that judgment is God's strange work. It's not his go-to. It's not his favorite. We're also told in James that the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. There's a difference between the wrath of man and the righteousness of God. Though it's an uncomfortable subject, it cannot be avoided. You see, we expect God to let all his beautiful creation be stolen, defiled, and destroyed while he benevolently sits back and just smiles and says, oh, I just love you all so much. That's okay, go ahead and ruin it. I don't care. Would you do that if somebody walked in your house after you just cleaned it and brought dirt and began to throw it around while talking about how stupid your furniture and everything was, would you? Would would you be okay with that? I remember one year, Brian and I had been married one year. It was our first year. And we couldn't afford a Christmas tree. You know, you remember those days? And we found a $5 one. And to say it rivaled Charlie Brown's Christmas tree would be absolutely true. And because we didn't have any money for this Christmas tree, this $5 one, or even ornaments, we made them ourselves. We did bread dough ornaments. And then I took um, little Hershey's Kisses, tied little bows of um, fabric I had, and put them on the tree. And we were so proud of our Christmas tree. And I remember this friend coming in and just saying, oh, your tree is so ugly. It's so stupid. Why did you even bother? And where did you get those ornaments? And oh, I like flock trees. And oh, uh, and she just kept on and on about the Christmas tree. Till Brian got up, because Brian is talking about slow to anger. This is Brian. He gets up and he goes, we're proud of this tree. We love our tree. And we made these ornaments ourselves. And why don't you just go home and just stare at your perfect tree? (laughs) You know, we don't invite people into our house. Or if they come into our house and they begin to blaspheme it, (laughs) talk against it, throw dirt around, you're going to get angry. So... Jesus, in Matthew 21, tells a parable. The same parable is repeated in Mark 12 and in Luke chapter 20, and it's the parable of the vineyard. And in that parable, he talks about how a man planted a vineyard. That's a lot of work to plant a vineyard. It it takes uh, taking the rocks out of the ground. It takes tilling the soil. It takes building... um, 
structures for the grapevines and then planting each grapevine. In those days, every vineyard had two other things besides the grapes. They had a press that was made, a special press that was made for the grapes, and it also had a tower to watch for predators because foxes would eat the grapes and others. So it had these things, and we're told that this man built a beautiful vineyard, and then he leased it out. But those who leased the vineyard refused to pay rent. They, they refused to give the owner the rent for this vineyard or what was due, the fruit from the vineyard, the wine from this vineyard. They said, no, it's ours. And so the owner sent ambassadors saying, you know, it's time to pay. You've been using this. You've been enjoying it. It's time to pay. And Jesus said, they killed some and they stoned others. And finally, he said, I will send my son. Surely they will respect my son. But in the parable, they said, this is the heir, the owner. Let us kill him and then we can keep the vineyard for ourselves. Then Jesus asked the question of, of those listening, what do you think the owner of the vineyard will do for those wicked renters? What do you think he'll do? And of course, they answered rightly, he will come, he will kick them out, and then he will give it to others that appreciate. If you were a landlord and you rented even an apartment and the person there was ruining and bringing devastation and doing unspeakably illegal things, you know, building bombs. Wouldn't you like them evicted? Wouldn't you like them evicted? Wouldn't you want to start over again? Though an uncomfortable subject, the subject of God's judgment cannot be avoided. Because the judgment of God is very real and very serious. And I think one of the reasons that we do not share our faith with others is because we, as believers, do not talk about the judgment of God. We ignore or neglect the issue of God's judgment and we try to push it out of our minds. But if we look at people like, Oh my goodness, they will suffer judgment unless they know of the grace and mercy of God through Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going to be, as I said, looking at Genesis 5 through 8, the story of Noah, to look at two sides of God's judgment. The first side is the standard by which God judges. Because God has a standard for judgment. And it's essential to talk about whenever we talk about his judgment. God uses a very strict criteria. But also God uses a judgment. I'm sorry, a standard for judgment. And he also uses a standard for saving. For saving men. And both are as strong. Noah was saved 
and he saved his family. And we need to look at the standard that he kept so that he and his family were saved in, from, and through the judgment of God. When we talk about God's judgment, I am going to give you five points, five of the criteria that God uses. God's judgment is according to God's righteousness. It's just and it's warranted because God knows everything. God knows everything. So it's righteous. His judgment is never based on misinformation. God's like, oh man, I didn't know. You know, I thought that golden thing on their table, I didn't realize it was salt and pepper shakers. I thought it was a golden calf. Sorry about that. No, God never has misinformation. God knows the thoughts of men and he knows the intentions or the plans of the heart. But God also knows the past and the future of every person. He knows whether a person will respond to his voice or rebel until death. I have a friend right now and her father is dying and she has shared Jesus with him. His life has been one unhappy episode after another. His life has been all about searching, searching, searching. But this man has also spent his life saying no to God, no. Now his daughter, um, he raised his daughter, my friend, in a totally godless atmosphere, totally godless. They lived as hippies. And she was told, you know, you can do whatever you want. You can make all the choices that you want. And he and his wife purposely made their lives structureless, structureless. She said there never was, you can do this or you can't do that. She said there were absolutely no standards at all in their home, none. You wanna, you like a boy, you can sleep with them. You want to smoke pot, be free, because they were smoking pot. She was raised in this environment, and she absolutely hated it. So that when she was 13 and heard the gospel for the first time, she wanted that. She loved it. She was attracted to it. She started going to church, and the difference in her life, the joy that came over her. And since she was that age, she, she's in her early 50s. She has been sharing Jesus with her father and mother. They got divorced. Her mother gave her life to Jesus, but this father is still resisting, resisting, resisting. He has grandchildren who are the fruit of my friend's life, and they are amazing. All of them so anointed, so gifted. She also married a wonderful husband. They have all been sharing Jesus and the love of Jesus with this man, and he has refused, refused, refused. They've been begging him. And when he was diagnosed with cancer and given just a few months to live and the appeals got stronger, he still is saying no. And then just last week, he sent her a text saying, I found out that I'm down to days, so I plan on ending my life myself in my time. 
And I think God knows how hard the heart can be and whether the heart will ever respond to the appeals. God knows. God also knows the saturation point, the point when sin has so overtaken the person that there is, there is no coming out of it. C.S. Lewis said, God does not send people to hell. He sends beasts to hell. He said, every sin is against our humanity until we are no longer human. We are more beasts than human. I don't know. That's just what C.S. Lewis said. I like it. It resonates with me. God knew everything about Noah's generation. In Genesis 6-2, we realize that God knew the exploitation of women. We read that the sons of God took, they took whatever woman, as many women as they wanted. The sin of Eve was to see and take. And that was what happened. These sons of God, whoever they were, whether they were angelic, spiritual beings, or whether they were from the lineage of Seth, they began to exploit women and take as many women as they wanted. Whatever age women became just a um, without worth to this generation. We're told in Genesis 6-3 that God's long-suffering was being exhausted. Some spiritual breach had been crossed from which there was no return, Genesis 6-4, that a lethal race had been created, and that the wickedness of man had reached the saturation point because it was very great. It was permeating the earth, Genesis 6-5. And God knew that there was no redeemable thought in mankind but according to Genesis 6, 5, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Earth was corrupt. All men but Noah and Noah's sons had corrupted themselves. Genesis 6, 11 and 12. The earth was so corrupt, so the Lord looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way. The earth was filled with such violence that existence on earth was perilous. Genesis 6, 11 through 13. My dad used to quote a hymn, and he loved to quote it. And when I quote it, you might recognize it. But he used to say, there is a time we know not when, a point we know not where, that marks the destiny of men to glory or despair. There is a line by us unseen that crosses every path, the hidden boundary between God's patience and his wrath. The second point, so the first point being God's judgment is righteous. The second point is that God's judgment is discriminatory. In other words, it sets a difference between the righteous and the wicked. When you read the book of Job, Satan is indiscriminatory. He just hurts everybody in his way or in his wake. He doesn't care 
righteous or unrighteous. He hurts everyone. Sin and the consequences of sin are indiscriminate. They affect the innocent as well as the guilty. I think of the fires in paradise, how it just destroyed the whole city, good, bad. Everyone was hurt. The fires in Fontana that are burning right now and the fires um, near Newberry Park, they're not discriminatory. They just hurt everything in its path. Most often, though, we see that it is the guilty that hurt and harm the innocent. There are over 2 million Christians that died in the concentration camps alongside the Jews in Nazi Germany. However, with God, there is a distinction. There is a difference. In Genesis 18, which we'll be studying in a couple weeks, Abraham knew this about God. When Abraham interceded for his nephew, he begins to negotiate with God in prayer. And his number one point is God's righteousness. And he says this in Genesis 18:25: Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? When it comes to the judgment of God in Exodus, we see, again, God distinguishes between the Egyptians and the Israelites, where Goshen has dark uh, light while all of Egypt is plunged into darkness. The cattle of the Israelites is not affected by the disease that inflicts all of the Egyptians. God makes a difference. In Exodus 8, verse 23, God says, I will make a difference between my people and your people. Noah, his wife and three sons and three daughter-in-laws are all given directives by God to be saved. God makes a difference. Along with seven pairs of every type of clean animal, God makes a difference between clean and unclean. There is a distinguishment. And then a pair of every type of unclean animal. Genesis 6, verses 18 through 20, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. God makes a difference. He distinguishes. Point three, righteous, discriminatory. Three, God's judgment is necessary. Without it, even the earth would not survive. It protects the innocent. It stops the evil and it protects his creation. Without God's judgment, Man would destroy himself and all nature with him. I think right now of how many nations have atomic bombs, have nuclear bombs, have the ability to destroy mankind and nature and are constantly threatening to do it. We live 
in an era with the constant threat of some despot pushing some button and wreaking havoc on all nature and mankind. The flood is God pushing the stop button on exploitation, spiritual disaster, violence, utter corruption, utter annihilation, and extermination. Fourthly, God's judgment is measured. It's measured. It's measured by time. There's a specific time when the flood would come. 120 years before the flood came, God spoke to Noah, Genesis 6-3. One week before the flood, Noah was called into the ark, Genesis 7-10. It's a specific day when God brings the flood. It's the 600th year of Noah's life in the second month and the 17th day. Genesis 7-11. Don't you, don't you love the specifics? God knows specifically down to the time, the hour. That's part of the measurement. The measurement. He didn't bring it a moment too soon or a moment too late. Then it's also seen in the duration, 40 days and 40 nights, not 41 days, not 40 and a half days, not 43 days, like, oops, went over by three days, not 39 days, 40 days and 40 nights. It has an imposed time limit, Genesis 7, 12 and 17. When David sinned in numbering the people, and we read this in um, the last chapter of First uh, Chronicles, we also read it in um, the final chapters of Second Samuel. God comes to David and says, David, there's got to be a judgment for what you've done. And I'm giving you the choice of three. Each one is specific. You know, three months um, in the hands of your enemies, three years of famine, or sorry, three months in my hands, uh, three days at the hands of your enemy, or three years of famine. David, looking at all the options, says it's better to fall into the hands of the Lord because his mercies are very great. But you see there's a time limit to God's judgment. And it's measured in implements. God uses the fountains of the deep. He breaks them up, Genesis 7:11. God opens the windows of heaven, Genesis 7:11. He uses specifics. Next, it is controlled. God never loses control of the elements, the windows of heaven, or of the, the springs in the earth. He never loses control of time or of the damage level. In Genesis 8-2, we read that God stopped the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven. He is completely in control. In Exodus, we see the measured judgment of God on Egypt. Each plague is just a bit more serious as a warning, an opportunity to repent in Exodus chapters 7 through 12. And God keeps saying that they might know, that they might know, that they might know that I am the Lord. In Revelation, 
we see that the judgment is loosed in seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. It's not arbitrary. It's not let's try this or I'm angry. It's always measured. Next, God's judgment. And finally, number five, God's judgment is purposeful. It's not so much to destroy as it is to clean, purify, and put in order. It's restorative. It has an end goal. It has an objective to clean the earth, to remove the curse against the crops and nature. It's to heal the earth. It's to save mankind and the animal kingdom. God cleanses the earth so that he may repopulate, bless, and save the earth in his creation. So let's just review for a second. God's judgment is righteous. It's discriminatory. It's necessary. It's measured and it's purposeful. It's so important to know that when we're thinking about the judgment of God. But secondly, the big secondly, the story of Noah also tells us the standard by which God saves. And in this standard, we see faith. Faith. It's saving faith. In Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9, we're told that it is by grace we are saved through faith. And that not of ourselves, but it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You see, grace, uh, uh, faith attracts the grace of God like nothing else. Faith attracts the grace of God. We read in 2 Chronicles 16, 9, that God's eyes search throughout the whole earth to find those who are faithful towards him. Same word, faith. Because you see, faith and faithfulness go together. It is those who are trusting in God. Not, I trusted in God, but I am continuing to trust in God. I am loyal to God because I trust in him. Faith, I'm sorry, faith attracts God's grace. I was reading yesterday in my devotions, I'm in um, Luke as well as Exodus, but I was reading in Luke how Jesus was just surrounded by these masses of crowds and they're pressing in on him. And there's that woman who's got an issue of blood and she's, she's going to get to Jesus no matter what it takes. And she's weak and she's anemic, but she sees Jesus and she makes her way towards him and she goes low and she gets beyond the crowd pushing and whatever it takes. And she goes down low and she just grasps at his hymn and immediately she's made well. And she knows it and she thinks she's just going to sneak away. But Jesus says, who touched me? And Peter looks at him and says, what do you mean? Who touched you? Who didn't touch you? All the crowds are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, no, this was different. I felt the virtue go out from me. And he looks around and his eyes 
find her. He locks eyes with her. Why? Because it's the touch of faith. The touch of faith. Because she said, nothing else can heal me, but Jesus can. No one else can save me, but Jesus can. And that's why she went down and out and deep and grabbed at him because Jesus saves. And Jesus could feel that. And what did it do? It brought the grace, brought the grace of God because he looked at her and he said, daughter, daughter, be healed and go, go with joy. You are released from your melody, completely healed. Faith, faith attracts God's grace. Three times the Bible tells us that God gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 3, 4, James 4, 6, 1 Peter 5, 5. Why? Because the humble know they need God. The humble believe in God. In the midst of all the exploitation, I'm better than anybody else and I deserve this. In the midst of all the violence, I'm going to protect myself. In the midst of all the wickedness, I'm going to indulge myself, whatever I want. In the midst of all the corruption, I can do whatever I want. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God saw Noah. God favored Noah out of all mankind. And Noah stood out from the rest of humanity. Why? Because of faith. But we also read that Noah was found righteous. Now we know he wasn't sinless because the Bible tells us over and over again that there is no one who hasn't sinned. In the prayer of Solomon, when he's dedicating the temple, he says, Lord, we know that there is not one who has not sinned. Paul tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So this righteousness that Noah had is not sinless perfection. No, but we'll learn what it is when we get to Genesis 15, 6. But let me tell you now that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. God uses faith to account us as righteous. This faith of believing in God Believing in God is what is reckoned to us, is what is put on our account. It is what God uses to count us, to ascribe his righteousness to us. Paul mentions this necessary quality of faith at least six times in the New Testament this righteousness that comes by faith. Noah's faith is seen because he believes God's warning about judgment. He builds, he follows God's instructions. In Hebrews eleven seven, we read by faith, Noah being divinely warned about things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness. How did he get this faith? How did he become an heir of righteousness? 
by believing God. What is faith? Believing God. Believing that God is, that God is who he says he is, and believing that his word is true and all that he says is right. Finally, faith, righteousness, which comes by faith, and obedience. And what is obedience? Obedience is the activity of faith. You see, faith has action. James 2, 20 and 26 says, faith without works or faith without actions is dead. In other words, a faith void of obedience or a faith that does not act, live, or build on the word of God is no faith at all. It's no faith at all. If it's never tested, if it's never tried, it's no faith at all. Noah's thorough obedience showcases his faith. Think about it. He built the ark when there was no sign of rain. There had never been rain before. There was no concept of rain. And yet God said, it's going to rain. He's like, okay, whatever that is, you tell me what to do and I'll, I'll prepare for it. He built the ark to specific specifications or to God's specific instructions. Imagine this. If Noah had believed about the judgment, but said, you know what? God, you just sit back and let me build this and, and let me do what looks good. Can you imagine if he, you know, this, the specifications of the ark look like a barge. What if he stood back and said, but it's not pretty. Can I, can I change it a little bit? God gave absolute specifics, specific dimensions, specific design, specific pitch, and special compartments in this. Anything less, if Noah had not followed to a T the specifications of God, the ark could have sprung a leak, sunk, fallen apart, or been unable to resist the waves and adulations of the storm. Anything less than complete obedience would not have preserved Noah, his family, and all of the animals on the ark for a year. Because it wasn't just the 40 days and 40 nights, and now you can be free. It's also the fact that the earth had to dry up. This had to be lasting. It had to be able to land on a mountain crag and not fall apart. It had to be able to crash, to, to hit a jetty, so to speak, to, to hit a coral reef, which happened to be a mountain, and not leak, not crack, and yet they held fast. These, these elements of faith, righteousness by faith, and obedience because of faith are crucial and life-saving elements to escape the judgment of God. We must believe our God is, and we must believe his word. That's faith. 
We must secure our righteousness in believing and walking with God. And we must obey God thoroughly. God's judgment is a reality whether you like it or not, whether you feel comfortable with it, whether if it gives you fuzzy feelings or not. God's righteous nature means that he must judge. He must judge iniquity, sin, and wickedness. Today, there is what we might call consequential judgment. In Galatians 6, 7, it says, whatever you sow, you will also reap. This is consequential judgment. And this we will see over and over again. The book of Proverbs deals with consequential judgment. But there is also an eternal judgment based on the decisions one makes right now on earth concerning Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the ark that God has provided for the saving of men. Those who believe God enter into Jesus and are saved. John 3.16, you know this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that anyone who believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Anyone who goes into Christ is saved, is saved. God has built the ark of Jesus, the Messiah, to save us from the present judgment of this world, the judgment our past sins deserve, and the pending judgment that is coming upon those who corrupt themselves in their rebellion to God. At some point, very soon, God is going to take back his vineyard. God is going to take back this world and this creation. And Jesus Christ will rule and reign over it. And those who are in Christ will be saved. And those who continually refuse Jesus Christ and continue to corrupt themselves will suffer the judgment. The way of salvation from the judgment is still by faith in God and what God says about judgment and salvation. Faith in God's salvation through Jesus Christ, his instructions. This is my beloved son. Hear him. And through obedience to God's word and what he tells us to do, we will be saved today, tomorrow, and forever. God is both judge and savior and today, I know that you're on the good side. But everyone in this entire world is either on one side or other. You will either know God as judge or you will know God as savior. That is the reality. You are either in the ark of Jesus Christ or you are not and you are susceptible to the floods and judgments of God. This is the message that we need to take to heart. It's a sobering message. Even as God was giving it to me, I'm like, can't I have a happy clappy? Like, you know, um, the Lord told Noah, it's gonna be a bloody, bloody Lord told Noah. It's going to be a floody, floody. Get those children out of the muddy, muddy. That's the one I wanted. Instead, I got this one, judgment. But you know what? 
we must know the judgment of God to appreciate the salvation of God, to be able to have the heart of God, the heart of God that so loved the world, that so loves the world, that he's not willing that any should perish, any should perish, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. God desires to put his heart of love and salvation in our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, you are a righteous God. And Lord, you do judge. But it is your strange work. Lord, you'd rather call out, and you do call out constantly, come unto me. Come to me and be saved. Lord, I pray that, Lord, knowing the judgment, Lord, we would be constrained more to show your love, more than ever to show your love and to seek and to pray for the lost that they might be saved. Lord, bless these, your women. Lord, secure them in your salvation and sober them by your judgment. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.